0: Welcome to Season 8 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Passionate about leadership education? You want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Welcome to the leadership educator podcast i'm van jenkins professor of leadership and organizational studies at the university of southern maine
1: and I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. Um, in our eighth season of the podcast, we are focused on research and scholarship in the field. And we're talking to journal editors, people that manage publications, scholars, peer reviewers, kind of anybody with their foot in research, asking the question, where should leadership educators go for research? Um, today, we're excited to have, um, it, it, it's kind of a old hat, meaning like we're revisiting an old conversation, but we get to talk with friends that we love. And so we're, we're very excited today to have our guests. So- Almost two years ago, we talked to Dr. Cristan Salente Scandel, Assistant Director of Youth Leadership Research and Impact at the Aspen Institute, an affiliate prof- assistant professor at the University of Maryland in the College of Education, and Dr. Tony Andonaro, Vice President and Chief Advancement Officer, uh, a- maintaining an academic appointment as a full professor in business and the Director of the Center for Leadership and Character at William Woods University. So to update uh, y'all, we wanted to bring them back in to talk about what's happened since they talked about the National Leadership Education Research Agenda 2020 to 2025 in the Journal of Leadership Studies. So today we're going to revisit that conversation and hear what's happened. Um, first, welcome to the show, Kristen. Thank
2: you.
0: And welcome to the show, Tony. Hey, thanks. Appreciate being here. Yeah, we're excited to have you all back. And as uh, Lawrence said, good good friends all around and definitely folks that I love running into it at you know, conferences and continuing this conversation. And you all always have your your, your feet and, and some pretty cool stuff that, that's going on. And since we last had you both on the show a couple of years ago, you've advanced your careers a little bit, which is fantastic. And so as, as you all heard, uh is now over at the Aspen Institute and Tony at William Woods. So a uh, little... Change a little change in weather, uh, I guess, a little bit for, for each of you, right? Are, are you based now? Uh, so Tony, I know you're based over there, um, near in what Columbus or near William Woods campus, there, right? Um, yeah, so
3: tail as old as time moving from Miami to Missouri, <laughs> everybody does it, you know, it is the thing to do right now, mm-hmm. but no, it's um, it's it's been a wonderful transition, and um, you know, to get our family back to a little bit of the Midwest roots while still having you know, two feet, you know, in other areas of the country, like Miami, where we we learned so much about ourselves. It's kind of fun.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely uh, had some people looking at me across uh, side when I said I was moving from Tampa to, to Maine. So um, although it's Southern Maine, it's Southern Maine. So it's not like I'm <laughs> not like I'm at University of Maine at Orno, where it's freezing all the time. Uh, our neighbor up, up, up north, our land grant that we like to pick on. So um, and then Kristen, are you are you based in um, Chicago or?
2: No, no, I'm Is, still just you're down still... the road. Oh, okay. In...
0: Remote Maryland. work, I tell
2: you. Yeah, yes. Yes. Last, um, last time it we... reflects a lot of the changing demographics happening right now across higher education. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, kind of funny thinking about that. Two years ago, what were we doing? Right. I mean, locked down like crazy. I think the vaccines were just starting to come out around that time. And oh my. So when we talked in February 2021, um, y'all had just uh, published the National Leadership Education Research Agenda version 2.0 that looked at the years 2020 to 2025. We had an episode with y'all. It was called the latest NLERA or LERA, um, which is fun to say three times fast with Dr. Tony Andonori and Cristan Salente Skendel. Which so, would you remind our listeners just a little bit what is this research agenda? How would you what's what's the uh, what's the elevator speech for what this thing is and what you hope it's impacted?
3: You know, Dan, I, I appreciate the question. You know, obviously, the if you're going to have a second iteration, you got to have a first iteration. So, um, you know, the inaugural one set some tone. We learned a lot from that. And then, you know, when we revisited the project and brought Kristen in, it, it was really to, to deepen the conversation and hopefully deepen the impact for what it was. And so, you know, there are four goals that we had hoped to achieve with the second iteration of the National Leadership Ed Research Agenda. And those were to provide context for the systemic societal challenges, and illuminate potential questions that will lead to usable knowledge. Um, and that's really grounded in Boyer's idea of discovery that he talked about way back in 96 and then revisited again in 2015 at all. Um, second goal was to inspire and extend the work in the academy within the practical contexts of promoting collaboration and utility for emergent findings and resulting implications. That's our application piece. Um, The next one was it it really reaffirmed the multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach and interdisciplinary outcomes um, that can shape change for our world. That's the integration piece. And then we were hoping that it would create best practices for leadership, teaching, learning as both an art and a science, which obviously aligns with um, our teaching. but I, I think if those were the goals, um, the the how and the why are are probably preceding those. and and that's really this was an exercise in intellectual humility. You know, we were genuinely curious about how the world of leadership learning was evolving, um, how specifically leadership education scholarship was informing that, and and how we could put together, a group of really highly talented, diverse authors to, you know, shape that for our field. And and I think the resulting hope and uh, impact to be determined, but the resulting hope is that, you know, people take agency from this. They have context for the past, understanding for the present, foresight for the future, and most importantly, that propensity to act upon that. And so, um, you know, it's a labor of love. There's no question about it. But what we believe is the nine emergent priorities create the foundations for great dialogue, curiosity, and hopefully the advancement of the field.
1: You know, I I love hearing you talk so passionately about this work and how it's not just we're not just doing research for research. We're looking how can we change and really propel the field. Um, We all know there's a leadership crisis right now, and I I imagine that we all feel some responsibility because we wouldn't do the work that we do, working with not just undergraduate students but graduate students and and other faculty and research trying to like advance the knowledge so that we can make some meaningful change. Um, So I know in the first two years, y'all had to have seen something come out of this. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of the priorities and maybe the examples that you've seen come from the work?
2: Absolutely. I think um, an additional component was also a call to action on some of these priority areas and really uh, being deliberate and intentional about conversations of leadership and social identities, leadership and social justice and critical theory. And um, thinking about how relevant now in this world of remote work, how do we think about the environments in which we're teaching and learning with um, digital approaches to dialogic pedagogy. And so, um, as Tony mentioned, and and for me, being a scholar practitioner is really important. And so the research being applied is as important as the research being generated. And uh, I think folks are using these priorities to shape their research uh, projects in their own work and in thinking about um, how are we shaping leadership programs in an applied way. From sort of a application space, the agenda has been cited uh, the different priorities more than 50 times in a variety of spaces. And the folks who have uh, contributed as authors have also been engaged in the forthcoming publication, the research agenda for learning and development leadership through higher education that will be published this summer edited by Susan Comavez and Julie Owen. Um, And that piece includes an entire overview of this piece. And so the National Leadership Education Research Agenda, published in 2020, is a part of that forthcoming publication. So there's another reminder of the priorities in that space. Additionally, there have been many presentations at ILA, LEI, and other conferences. And I think we're still in a in this kind of weird space of education. And so this uh, was developed and conceived of in, what was it, 2019, Tony? I'm trying to get my yeah. timing right. And so we were editing and um, finalizing the pieces in a COVID lockdown post-George Floyd world in 2020. And so all of that is happening, published in December, 2020, if I'm getting my timing right. Um, And so then thinking about the world that we envisioned when we entered into this project and the world as it is, as the project has been released, are very different worlds. And so the number of folks attending conferences is lower than it was in years past um even the number of folks doing this work in higher education has shifted and there's a massive changing demographic of college students and I think all of those pieces are happening interconnectedly as we think about how this work continues to have an impact and what the future of it could be I don't know Tony what you might add to that
3: no I I would agree and I think Lauren you said it really well when you said there's a crisis of leadership you know it, So COVID hurt because it didn't allow us to come together and have those amazing conversations that inevitably lead to actions, lead to more publications, lead to, you know, really cool grant initiatives and all these wonderful things. Um, And and so that's why I say that the impact is yet to be determined. But I mean, if, if there is truly a crisis of leadership, and I think we can all agree that there is. I mean, we need to be doing this critical work. We need to be making decisions informed by data. We need to be you know, soliciting perspectives other than our own and from people who look, act, and think different than us. And, and that's just going to create the most holistic perspective for how we can inform you know, the next generation of leaders um, because, I, I don't know, there's, there's trouble on the horizon. And so if we're not preparing them, we're probably doing a disservice to our world.
1: Yeah, y'all, y'all are so right, and I, I feel like so, so in my um leading diverse teams class, one of the things I talk about is there's some people who are still on this like diversity wave, like they're still looking at the numbers, and there's a large part of the population, including young people, looking for justice, so they're looking for that action piece, and so they keep saying like, no, we're hiring, or we're bringing in, or we recognize, and they're like, no, you need to do something, and we're not patient enough to wait for y'all to realize that we're going to take action ourselves. Like Christine, you're talking. Talking about young people nowadays and there's definitely a difference and they have no patience with us as i always say as the adults but like they don't have the patience with us because they are looking for us to lead. And we're kind of looking around at this like dumpster fire, you know, and and saying, well, like, let's do these things. Let's, you know, like what we used to do is not working. And it's very clear. And so if we're not stepping up and leading that charge, they don't want anything to do with us and they're not going to buy in. And so I like, honestly, I love it. It's a beautiful space to be in because they're holding us to task. But it also makes you think about and check your own awareness and think about what do you need to change and do differently? And, And I feel like a part of this work is really shifting, not just leading leadership educators, but all of us educators to meet them where
2: they are. And in thinking about the disservice that we're doing in access to high quality leadership programs for young people, the data show us consistently over time that what is it fewer than 32% of college students have access to any leadership development program. And of those only 50% are uh, meaningful in any way. And so this is a a call to action in how are we applying what we know from the research and scholarship into what we know that students are seeking and young people are looking for into meaningful opportunities to help create a solution to the crisis that we're facing.
3: You know, just to to throw this in really quickly, I, I really appreciate where you're going. I get really excited about it because- you know, I was having a meeting with executive cabinet the other day, and and I was expressing my frustration over, we're going to do's, we will do's, we could do's, and we need it to done list. And it's just, it drives me crazy in higher education when we talk about all of the wonderful intentions that we have. Well, the path to hell is paved in good intentions. We need strategic actions. And I, I, I really, I think about it often. I mean, stakes are too high. Our students are deserving of our best. So why would we give them any less? And this is that call to action that says, sorry, it's time to get off our butts and do something.
1: I love that you shared that because it makes me think about the ways in which we can do better. Like they're not waiting for us. So they are going to like LinkedIn learning and to YouTube. And, you know, we had an episode where we talked about how we're learning leadership from the Avengers movies. So it's, it's everywhere for them, but I feel like the value we bring is being able to facilitate the conversation. So they actually learn and can process in a way. Like I always think, Um, I watch Avengers movies all the time. And because of the the knowledge I have of leadership, I can see it very clearly. But then I look at my kids and they're taking away leadership pieces too. But are they taking away like this heroic piece? Like one person comes in and solves it all, or you have to have super ordinary, you know, characteristics and traits in order to save the world. And it's like, you know, while the information is there, that processing piece is there. And that's kind of our golden nugget in all of this. And I I wonder if we truly recognize that opportunity and and kind of hold it precious and do the work so that we can create those opportunities um because they're going to go get it regardless of if we're there or not but how can we kind of be those vessels for them in this space
3: yeah we'll say
0: yeah no you, you had me thinking about um so I was, while i was walking the dogs this morning I was listening to our our friend and kind of partner podcast uh, over there uh, with scott allens from nisa so he uh, posted an episode with barbara kellerman and It was about the leader of the year, and uh, she anointed uh, Vladimir Putin as leader of the year for 2022. Uh, And she has her reasons, as you can imagine. And one of the things that she was talking about, I want to get into that, but you should check it out. Fun episode. But one of the things that she mentioned, and those of y'all that know uh, of her, she's a pretty prolific writer and blogger. Uh, at least in the last couple of years, even more so. But she has a book coming out, which has me thinking about what y'all were talking about. You know, are we in the, what type of leadership crisis are we in? And how might this agenda address some of these things? But she has a book coming out calling something to the effect of like leadership from bad to worse. (laughs) <laughs> and she, you know, being the uh Debbie downer sometimes, but she she owns that in, in the in the episode. And so it's kind of interesting to think about. And you know, and she's written about bad leadership and leaders who lust was one of her most recent texts. And you know, she's really investigating kind of the toxic and dark side of of some of these things. And so it's it as I think about where the direction of this work perhaps should be going, you know, what, what are some ways that the research agendas maybe not being utilized like what's missing or what opportunities do y'all feel still exists to to really use and kind of respond to or contribute to the conversation of this valuable resource that y'all helped to to put out in the world you know i think there's never
3: a, a shortage of opportunities and there's never an abundance of time and and that's the challenge that we find ourselves in in higher education but also in the spaces that higher education serves um what i would say is I I think ultimately where it it needs to be utilized and maybe where it's been underutilized in the past is just, it really, this is, I I keep going back to it, but this is about intellectual humility. It's, it's, we read something and we say, what can I take from this so I can be better and I can create spaces where other people can also benefit from this. And I, I think about faculty members, you know, and, you know, a longtime faculty member. I've been in the, uh, the profession for over 25 years, and, and I always cherished my time as a faculty member, but my, my biases became ingrained. I had ideas, of you know, from desirability biases of what I would pursue to uh, binary biases that something was either good or bad if it aligned with my current research. And the reality is, I needed to take a step back and become curious about my environment and understand that something like the National Leadership Education Research Agenda forces me to think critically about who I am and how I work with not only the graduate students I have an opportunity to work with or the undergraduate research projects that I get an opportunity to work with, but the other faculty around me. I mean, we should be challenging each other. Iron sharpens iron. And so what I would say is... When you engage in early on research projects as a faculty member, if if I was looking for the ideal, I would share this document and say, how does this inform, inform the journey that we're about to go on? Not necessarily as a roadmap, but just as an overarching scaffolding of the land. When we understand the landscape, I think we can traverse the trave- terrain a lot better.
2: I would add to that also, uh, leadership education and leadership is a discipline and it spans the disciplines. And I think a benefit of the agenda is it's relatively focused to higher education. And we attempted to be interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary in the publication. And the reality of research and scholarship and how it is valued and produced in education settings is um influenced by the journal spaces and then what counts in someone's impact factor and how do we then continue to um silo spaces in in settings on campuses within colleges within departments within units based on how do we then help advance in careers so that folks can have promotion and tenure which is very important and create influence and that means that folks in other disciplines don't always come looking to journals that we would look to in the version of leadership education, where I think our the folks on this call are engaged. And so I think that is a limitation. Um, and in my own experience, I think folks from other disciplines often see my version as leadership as maybe not valid or not relevant to their version of leadership, which for me is is counter to how to think about leadership as a concept and the importance of it in in not just in an education setting, but in our world. And so I do think that it's important for us to start thinking about how do we take this work and translate it into other spaces where there can be greater impact the conferences are so important and so valuable but not everyone is going to those conferences um the publications uh how do we think about ways to engage in this work and cross over into other spaces to create opportunities um one space where i'm excited that this has happened is through we just completed our inaugural aspen index impact fellowship and brought together a group of folks from across different institution types from high school settings, nonprofits, and education, folks who have been engaged in leadership education who are included in this publication, and folks outside of that. And one of the wonderful opportunities was to create the opportunity for conversation that Tony mentioned in collaboration across uh, spaces where folks may not have otherwise interacted. And one of our uh, forthcoming publications is a um, future of research policy report and so different than a call to action in research spaces in particular and more about how do we engage in that certainly but what are the intersections in a, um, a translational research kind of space you
0: yeah, know you know I as I'm hearing you all share all of this and it's really great to see uh, I guess to listen and learn from, from y'all about some of the opportunities that that still exist out there and For our listeners that are, you know, engaged in leadership roles or board roles and some of the professional associations, you know, that support leadership education, why not consider holding some type of space or form at at an upcoming conference for really diving into this in in some way, shape or form, whether it's uh, inviting some of the authors from the different priorities to to do a panel at like a plenary or, or something to that effect. I mean, I... Some of those efforts have have definitely existed in the past. I, I find that, um, and having been a, a champion of both both of these projects, and and having the opportunity to contribute to them, I know that um, sometimes some associations welcome the opportunity to to get this stuff out there, and uh, and others it was it, it could be a real uphill battle just because. Well, what is this? You know, are the, there's there's not as much familiarity with what the um, what the approach was, and and for folks that have uh, are listening, maybe for the. To this conversation for the first time, if you go back to the 2021 episode, which we'll definitely put in our show notes, one of the things that y'all shared was how many contributing authors were there? Tony, can you remind us that? 54. Um, 54 from a variety of different places on this planet. Yeah. So I can hit you with those numbers really quick.
3: So 141 submissions, 84 universities and organizations representing 21 countries that um, when we... know really went through the selection process and um we ended up having an acceptance rate of 7.6 percent in the the student or the sorry the authors that were put into the work groups were uh, 54 total authors making it the most comprehensive and diverse project ever initiated and completed within the space of leadership education
0: yeah and kudos to y'all for you know for driving that um and facilitating that that process of power in those folks and so yeah i mean uh I hope that uh if you're listening and you have any influence create some space for for these conversations because it's and it's a great way as y'all kind of alluded to to engage graduate students in the the study and, and inquiry of uh of our field and um, and junior faculty and you know you had me thinking like hmm I probably need to make sure that our folks know about this during our residency with our PhD students why are we not doing that and maybe, Folks that are, if any of the folks that are part of that doctoral consortium with um, with ILA, maybe that's a good spot for for that. Or um, I don't know if NASPA, or, ACPA or some of the other student affairs focused associations have like a doctoral prep type of. I know that that's the case, and I know that our friends over at the Management Organization Behavior Teaching Society they do have like a PhD boot camp that they do at their annual conference. So uh, so yeah, just getting this out there. And I think we're we're, we're hoping to do something like that too, right, Lauren.
1: Yeah, well, it's so funny, as y'all are talking, the the public relations brain in me is just going, and I'm like, all right, so it sounds like a strategic campaign, and what are the goals, and who's, and I'm like going through all the stakeholders and thinking about all these ideas, but but Dan, that last point you bring up, so at ILA, I attended the doctoral um, program that they had before the conference, and you're exactly right, this conversation is so appropriate for spaces like Mm -hmm. that as you're looking at students who are trying to connect to the work but then I also think too there are some different ways to think about that you know you're right people aren't going to conferences um because of the pandemic we're almost at a base level operating still in survival mode because we're juggling like our responsibilities but also haven't really processed the trauma of being restricted as a whole for such a long period of time and Almost like, oh, it's almost like when you see a a lake full of ice and you want to test, you want to put your foot out there and, and then after you put your foot out there and you don't go through, you're still scared to take that second or third step and continue because you just, you just don't know. There's just so much uncertainty, but it, it made me think about this great graduate extern I had a few years ago when I was in the leadership office. Her name was Sarah. And she did this really cool project where she looked at this YouTube series and the series was set up almost like a reality show, but it was built around Jeep and this product that they wanted to push out. And like, it blew my mind. But then I started thinking like, I wonder if there are people who have those same creative ideas and can we just mesh the two and apply them to leadership? Meaning we don't have like the regular panel or the people talking about this. Maybe it's debate or recorded discussion or, you know, scenario or something. But I I think about, are there opportunities for us to get people thinking creatively as well as getting them into the literature? Like we do it in class all the time. Like I I was thinking, I wonder if my com leadership students would want to do infographics related to some of the information that's in the research agenda, right? Or assigning groups different priorities and having them present in class like you know there's so many really good opportunities to explore and um, my brain is running around with all of them, so we can talk about those later, but it brings me back to the Center point of this is it's it's such an a good way to get people introduced into this work and i think we have to think differently about how we introduce and bring people in this space especially with undergraduate students because they they want to be there and they want to know but the the ways in which we've done it in the past can't work um like yeah. they like if we got on TikTok and talked about it they'd be in it but if we you know in class they read this assigned journal article you know it's not going to be the same and so it, it really kind of goes back to us as as faculty and researchers really thinking about how do we change our, our interaction with this?
3: Lauren, you bring up a really great point. I mean, I think higher, higher education in general is, is at an inflection point because as, as the business corporate world moves towards, you know even more of a high innovation, high risk, high reward type of practice, and higher education tries to hold on to the traditional values of slow and steady wins the race, Unfortunately, they're just going to be left behind. And so our ability to meet the challenges that exist in our world and meet the needs of our student populations will inevitably be incumbent upon our own desire and ability to grow. And I think that in these leadership spaces, that that should be what, what we already ascribe to. But we are challenged as faculty members because we've been beaten down by the traditional bureaucracy of slow and steady and keep your mouth shut and your head down, you know, all these things that we hear time after time after time. And the reality is that it puts us in a catch-22 because if we're trying to justify our program existence by how we're being innovative and we're meeting the needs of society and our students and we're trying to keep our mouth shut and our head down, those two things don't work nicely together. And so my thought is... Let's meet the students needs. Let's collect the data accordingly. Let's align ourselves with the things that project where we're going in the future, like the National Leadership Education Research Agenda, and then have those critical conversations that aren't necessarily comfortable, but are absolutely necessary.
1: You know, it's interesting that you bring that that up because there's this book called um, A A New Kind of Diversity, and it talks about how you get your teams to work together when you have people from all ages and all backgrounds. And one of the things that they talk about is when you're faced with a challenge, you default into what you know because you feel comfortable in that experience. And we all kind of know this to be true. (laughs) And the problem now is um, what we've been doing isn't working, but we keep going and keep doing. It because it comforts us rather than um, actually addresses and solves the problem. And so you're right, it makes sense that in higher education we're doing that because we've always been this way. But there's a whole bunch of us that are murmuring like we need to change. And so I feel like it's inevitable that you're right, it's going to happen.
3: And and that's the beautiful part about leadership, right? You know, we're trying to build competence and capacity to address these complex problems that we don't have answers to. And and the reality is that, psychologically speaking, a lot of times we default to command and control when we lack competence. But in times of that, this is exactly what we need. We need a space to co create a conversation where we can understand how we can grow and how together we can produce a collective that can answer that. We don't have to have all the answers. We just need to have enough intellectual humility to seek out those answers and build the collectives that can help us to get to that better place in the future.
1: Yeah. Well, and I imagine that in some of the priorities, like we haven't talked a lot about it today, but thinking about y'all's relationships with the folks that led, the kind of took the charge on those different priorities, um, are there some things that based on your conversations, based on your interaction, um, that you think should be pulled out of those. Like our intention is to talk to the, the lead authors from those priorities. Like what are some of the things that you think could be pulled out of those conversations that would continue to push the the agenda?
2: I think building off of what Tony just shared and thinking about the importance of the collective voice in creating the each priority, and and you were were part of one of the very large groups. Um, If any one person had authored by themselves, I think each priority would look much different than in bringing together the multiple perspectives of folks. And there were folks who are researchers in faculty appointments and folks who are practitioners and graduate students. And so the many different lenses that were brought to each priority and the process of co-creating that together. And folks each had their own different agendas and ideas that they brought together. And those collective ideas then, I think, shaped the final version that was published in a way that was much different than if any one person had done that alone, or if any one pair of folks who have worked together often had done that. And so there are challenges when you bring together eight or nine folks who are experts and um, important thought leaders to then collectively co-create something that was not a very high word count. And so I think even just that process has helped to shape what comes next for folks, not just the content of what's published, but the relationships that were built, the conversations that were had also have an impact. And so it would um, I think be interesting to sort of talk with each of the authors about what the co-creation process was like um because each priority of the 9 functioned very differently and I think we all see that when working with teams and groups um there's different uh processes and what works for one will not work for another and some of that I think was influenced by the topic and some by the people and some by the relationships um but that would be I think the process of research and scholarship is really important to think about um, because we often just see the product and we don't know about how that product is created. And so um, pulling back the curtain a little bit on the process, I think, would be of value.
3: I, you know, I'll, I'll add to that. First of all, Kristen, thank you for that. I think one of the things that we were very intentional about when we originally put this thing together was the the order of priorities and and Kristen really helped me to kind of see the forest for the trees on that one? Um, you know, everything that we do starts with identity, and so that's why that's the first priority. Um, I think about you know why dialogue is difficult in organization, why conflict arises, why we struggle in faculty spaces, why we struggle in higher education spaces. It's because our identities are tied to the things that we are fighting for. And so if we don't understand our identities first, we can't get to all the things further on down the line. Um, But there are these these massive questions within these priorities that I would love to see unpacked more. I think we're still just scratching the surface from an interdisciplinarity perspective. I mean... How do we exist in these traditional silos of higher education where we we desperately believe that we want to take things from liberal arts, natural sciences, all these different spaces, and bring them together in this space where we're going to address these complex problems when we're still struggling with the, the essence of interdisciplinarity? I also think that as traditionalists, we see things through the quantitative lens, we see things through the qualitative lens, and we see things through a mixed methods lens. And it's like, what about these emergent methodologies that, you know, Tom et al, you know, I guess you knew, you knew Zee, um, et al, um, it, it, you know, really brought together, you know, it's like, how do we, how do we utilize um, brain-based research? How do we utilize clinical stuff? How do we utilize social network analysis, all of these different things to help us understand where leadership learning really needs to go for the future? Because, again, we are in this system where we need to evolve as a functional and, and fundamental piece of what leadership means.
1: You know, it's, it's so interesting you say that because we're doing a side project where we're talking to some folks that have been around the leadership field for a long time. And they're kind of like, as we get into the interviews, they're kind of upset. They're like, we thought we'd be further along and we're not, what do we need? And as they're kind of heading out, they're trying lovingly putting their foot in our butts. Like y'all need to come on and get this together. We didn't do this so that we didn't start this field so that y'all could just continue and maintain. We need you to push the envelope. So I, I think the support is there. It's just, how do we get past ourselves?
3: Well, I, I also think it's, um, you know, it, it really is a what's what's your rubber band that you snap on your wrist that that holds you accountable to the particular thing. And I, I think about, you know, I, I recently transitioned from another university, and you know, we had a, a large PhD program in ethical leadership, and you know, one of the things that we actively tried to do was dissuade students from just regurgitating the same type of research that had been done 17 times before. I mean, don't ask the question that's already been answered. Figure out the nuance in that, and then the marginal benefit that takes us just this much further past where we were, because that's how we push the field to a new place.
1: We got to start earlier though, because so I think about my own experience and in an undergrad and grad school where you're taught to regurgitate. So then you get to your PhD program and they're like, nope, creating yourself. And I'm like, how? I've built a life on respecting these folks. I can't, like Susan Convess, I can't challenge her. I mean, I know she lovingly would want it, but and she'd send an email about it afterwards which I appreciate those emails but how do I challenge a person I've looked up to for this you know it's this mm-hmm. the shift I don't think is given enough uh attention in our own educational process so we have to start it early like in my my freshman it's not freshman it's a thousand level con leadership class my first question is always like well what's missing or how do we change this knowing what we know now and they're kind of like, no, you told us to memorize. And I'm like, no, what I asked you to do was like, I know y'all have opinions. I jump into like some uh, cultural references. If y'all can criticize Taylor Swift, you can criticize this leadership article just to get them to have those conversations so that they're in that habit earlier. And so I feel like it's it's too late if we're waiting to graduate programs to start this conversation.
3: Okay, two quick things. First of all, never challenge Taylor Swift. She's above reproach. Second, um, I think one of the fun things that that I've been experimenting recently is, you know, what does is, what is leadership development look like within early childhood education, charter schools, things like that, where you have a little bit more freedom to do the things the the challenge is, how do we help these these young generation to understand that they can ask the question why, they can ask the question how, they they can really engage in this conversation at a very young age. I mean, I'm talking five to seven. And at the same time, help the educators to understand that that's not them not behaving, that's them growing and creating a space with them. And so it's this Again, challenging where we were and hoping to go to a very different place. And so, I think the data is, um, you know, still in the process of being collected on that. But, but I always say I, I agree with you. How do we start at the earliest possible age um, so we can create a foundation for, you know, more Greta Thunbergs in our world who challenge status quo and say there has to be something better, and leadership is the vehicle to get there.
0: I love what y'all were sharing, and, and kind of the back and forth there, and 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 kind of how uh, Kristen kind of, I guess, uh, kind of starting starting that um, the momentum there, and you really made a great point, and which y'all kind of solidified about how just this process itself builds community within the field, you know, by, and and I know that was one of the, and you shared that story podcast a couple of years ago about experience you had had, I think with the, it was like an agricultural education research agenda that, and then, you know, this idea that, well, what if you get, what if a a Senator asks you well, what are your priorities? You want to throw some money at you? And you're like, well, we don't even have a research agenda. Right. Right?" And so you're like, nah, this can't be, how do we, how do we fix that? We got to fix that right away. Right. But not only does it create this like evolutionary, like impetus just uh or, organized and and i guess organic impetus it it's continuing the story and it's it makes the story kind of ongoing and and constructivist in its nature and and it's an it's an entry point for folks to be a part of the conversation which i think is just one of the, the things that is just really that i that i love and find interesting about these research agenda processes and the continuation of it which you you know you shared as well the book that julian and uh Susan are, are about to publish that uh, continues this conversation. So, anything else? I guess that you know we didn't ask you that you all would love to share with listeners about process where you see it going or, or anything else. Yeah, I, I would say you know to to go back to the idea
3: that you talked about a second ago, Dan. You know the the agricultural education research agenda that was at Osborne's work back in the day. He he was sitting there with that lobbyist in Washington D.C. and you know he they said, hey, do you have a one pager about the trajectory of your field? And I, I think that it, that's a cautionary tale. Um, that cautionary tale led to us saying, you know, not only one, how do we justify our existence as a field of, of leadership, but um, more importantly, how do we have those critical conversations to do the the work of service through leadership learning? Um, my, my sincere hope would be that we continue to have those critical conversations and we look for opportunities for market disruption. I mean honestly we we have to be our own worst critic on this one and if we're not being reflective I think we're missing out on significant opportunities to actually meet the needs of our society and students. And so, you know, my my appreciation for you guys is that you want to have this conversation. And that means that you're thinking through this. Hopefully people listening to the podcast are thinking through this and that Every single day, they ask the question, how can I be better? And how can I push the field? Because inevitably, that's what leadership requires for our world.
2: And how do we do that with community in really being intentional about uh, engaging young people also in this work? I think, Dan, you asked about what was missing. I think we did we did not have undergraduate students engaged here. Mm-hmm. We did not have young young folks. And so how can those voices continue to be centered and and heard and as we help to move forward and be responsive and disruptive in the spaces where we have the opportunity to do so?
1: Well, thank y'all so much. We, we knew this was going to be a great conversation. It did not disappoint. And, and even more so, I feel more charged. Like I was writing down notes and I was like, oh, do this, do that. Think about this, think about that. And, and, and just thinking about like my own work and how it ties to the priorities and the agenda. And so I, Appreciate the conversation, as well as the the motivation and encouragement I feel like myself and others will have after they listen to this episode. Um, we wish y'all the best of luck um, moving forward. And, um, and and again, thank you for joining us today.
3: Awesome, thank you so much for having us. Appreciate the conversation, crew.
2: Yes, thank you very much. This is always fun. Do
0: you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page, and find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Doctor Underscore Leadership, and Lauren is at M R S L A U R J B. That's Miss. Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at theleadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us.
1: We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management.
0: And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience.
1: And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.